progress report. Could be an ending report. You never know. It depends how people well, evaluate. That's progress. Well, thank you for being here. Um, in terms of my background, just for you, those of you who are Oh, good, it didn't go off. For those of you who are interested, uh, I'm a social psychologist, and I've been here at Duke for, I don't know now, what, 16 years? And just recently, well, last three to four years, been in the School of Nursing. Almost all my research has really focused on the how do we persuade people to engage in better, healthy lifestyles. And one of the areas I really tend to focus a lot on is in the area of smoking cessation, particularly targeting college populations. And believe it or not, really, we know very little about how to motivate cessation and target in, in that target population itself. Most of what we've spent our time focusing on are, and makes perfectly sense, are adults, and to some extent, the people who are really, really young, because we don't want them to get them to start smoking. But we haven't focused on college students, and the question is, how could we actually motivate them to quit? My approach has really been to think of, can we actually help college populations understand the risks a little bit better of what they're doing when they're smoking? And so I went ahead and proposed, why don't we try to use some marker of genetic susceptibility to see if it actually may work? <clears throat> this is this particular ad that I thought was kind of cool, kind of graphic, but yet cool. Um, and the idea here is, if we tell people that nicotine is something that's controlling their lives, does it somehow get people pissed off? You know, so if the tobacco industry is giving you products that are actually make you lose control over your own behaviors, does it get people to kind of have this backlash effect of, well, you're not going to go ahead and control my behavior, and therefore I'm not going to go ahead and smoke? Okay? And in fact, there are some hints here or there that actually if you tell people that you're going to be manipulated into a product that's going to control you, people have a, this sense of reactance. I don't know if you ever heard this term of reactance, which is, I want to regain my freedom, and therefore I'm probably going to do just the opposite of what it is that you're trying to tell me. Now, it so happens, if you were to go ahead and, uh, and ask college smokers about this whole issue of becoming addicted, and, even, and not only college smokers, but even people who are younger than that, one of the things you will find out is that they really don't understand the addiction process very well. Um, and, and so one of the issues that is surprising is that if you look at the literature, there's very, very few, if any, studies that really dwell into details about helping people understand what it is about becoming, how, how addiction develops, what are some of the symptomology, how quickly it could progress, and so forth. Most of what we focused on is just, in part, the risks associated with smoking. But if you were to go ahead and ask people what's their chance in college populations, for example, what are their chances of actually becoming addicted, what you will find is they have what's called an optimistic bias. So what's an optimistic bias? An optimistic bias is you think other people are more likely to become addicted than yourself. And they've done some tests looking at high school students where what they've asked them to do is tell me what's the likelihood that you're actually going to be smoking five years from now. And what you find is that people overestimate the likelihood that they will not be a smoker in a period of five years. About 50% of them are incorrect. A lot of them continue to, to smoke. So um, not surprisingly then, <clears throat> one of the issues is, well, if people don't understand the processes of addiction, one of the things we need to inform them about is issues regarding what's the role of genomics, genetics in this whole process of addiction. And not too surprisingly, and given that you have an institute here on genetics and genomics and across the nation and worldwide, you know, there's been a lot of research looking at these processes of addiction. And it's been really looked at in terms of two broad phases. One of them is what are some of the genetics involved in terms of making people more susceptible to becoming addicted to, to nicotine? And then there's another whole slew of research looking at 
how do people respond to cessation giving your genetic markers when people try to give you things like NRT products? Who is more successful at using NRT products and what do the roles of genes have to play in that? Well, I really was, I'm sorry, uh, nicotine replacement products or treatment. Um, so what I was really interested in is trying to get college smokers who, for the most part, aren't really addicted yet and give them information about their own susceptibility to their genetics of addiction and see if that has any effects on smoking. So let me go ahead and before, talk before to... Before you go on to the study, um, mm -hmm. are you going to talk about at all about um, genetics and behavior? And um, it seems like you, you, made, you inferred that we know a lot about the genes controlling behavior. And um, is that true? And is there, are, is there a good literature on uh, genetic variation and certain types of behaviors that are related to this? Scenario? Well, there's been, let's see, in terms of the addiction literature, what I know is that there's been some research on like chromosome 13, 14, and 15, I believe, or is it 3, 4, and 5? So there's been a lot of research in that area. There isn't any consensus in terms of what seems to be the best set of SNPs or markers to actually predict addiction. Um, you know, and then, and which is something that's very common across a whole bunch of complex behaviors. If you look at a particular SNP, what you'll find is it doesn't necessarily predict a lot of the variability in the behavior. So, for example, one SNP may explain 1% of the variability in getting it addicted. So, not a lot. But in terms of general behaviors, uh, you know, it all depends on what you want to look at. For example, in obesity, there's been, I don't know, about right now up to 18 SNPs that people have thought are related to obesity. FTO, I think, is one of the, the big hitters. You know, we've got several markers right now in terms of trying to predict treatment effects for breast cancer. Um, in terms of prostate cancer, I know there's, I'm working with a group at Wake Forest, there's about 14 different SNPs that are being used. So there's more and more research looking at a combination of markers. In general, what you find is they don't necessarily predict the development of complex behaviors very well. And in terms of the behavioral literature, when you give people information about their genetic risks, what you find in general is it doesn't do much. Uh, so the question is, well, why doesn't it do much? Now, it doesn't mean it's useless. It just means it doesn't actually affect hardline behaviors. Did that answer your question? That just sounds like it's early days. Yeah, and the thing that makes it more complex with smoking is that it has a strong social, cultural, normative component to it, especially for youth. I know there's been some work on alcohol with naloxone and um, SNPs in the opioid receptor and um, looking at combination of the genetics plus behavioral um, coaching, and that always seemed more successful than just Yeah, one of the criticisms in the smoking arena is that the research that have used SNPs have used to primarily predict lung cancer risk in smokers. Mm -hmm. And with very few exceptions, 
almost all of it looks at, let's just give people a particular marker and see if it has any effects. It's not usually followed up with any kind of counseling, more intensive kinds of interventions to see if, does that add something in addition to whatever the effects of the specific marker or markers are. Uh, so I want to, uh, I gave a talk about a year ago about the theoretical background and all that, so I'm not going to go ahead and repeat that. And what I really want to emphasize is more the, the study design and some of the results of the study. So what we did is we recruited college smokers for various campuses here in, in central North Carolina. They had to have the characteristics as above, uh, pertaining to that age group. They had to be light smokers or something we consider to be light smokers. So they had to smoke either less than five cigarettes a day or they had to at least smoke one cigarette a week. So some of these might be considered experimenters. <clears throat> and they had to be open to actually undergoing genetic susceptibility feedback. When they uh, were found eligible and went through the consenting process, we went ahead and then completed the baseline survey. And then after they completed the baseline survey, what we had them do is attend an on-campus meeting here at Duke or wherever their university was. And we randomized them to two different kinds of interventions. One of them is what's called a science education only intervention. I'll explain to you in a minute what science education is. Or what we did is we gave them science education plus a, some form of testing about their susceptibility. Then they came back to a second session, usually about a month later, where what we did is we gave them the test results if there were a group that actually were to get a result back or we asked them to respond to hypothetical situations under the assumption that you got this particular test result or a, a different kind of test result. And then we completed a one-month follow-up with these people. So let me explain to you then what science education is. We have here on campus Rochelle Schwartz-Bloom, who's a pharmacologist. At least I think she would describe herself as a pharmacologist, although more and more she describes herself more as an educator. But the whole idea of science education is the notion that if people need to make informed choices about their health or anything, and for that, for that matter of fact, that they really need to understand the details, the facts, but also how to apply those facts. So rather than just understanding facts, the idea is let's go ahead and look at all this information and see how it works together to go ahead and affect a particular outcome. So. We applied this particular approach. And by the way, for those of you who are interested, I could go ahead and give you the handout of, of all our materials we used. What we did is we gave them an overview of what nicotine is in relationship to, to uh, smoking. And we, we you know, stressed certain features. So for example, we told people that nicotine is toxic. So one drop of nicotine could kill a person, for example. It's a very, very highly toxic product. We went ahead and talked about how it affects the brain. We went ahead and looked at the various stages of becoming addicted. <clears throat> we went ahead and actually showed them pictures, which I'll go ahead and show you in a minute, about how the brain changes as a function of getting nicotine. And then we talked about the genetics of nicotine and how the environment plays a role in that. And so here's some graphic pictures. So we show how the smoke goes through the body, through the lungs, and what, it, and what have you. The, the basic idea in part is that nicotine works really, really quickly. It goes through the body very quickly in lots of different organs, some of the major ones being the brain and the lungs. <clears throat> this is how we talked about how nicotine affects the brain. So we emphasized neurotransmitters, and we talked about acetylcholine transmitters. We talked about synapses. We talked about how nicotine com com uh, competes with other uh, neurotransmitters for the receptor sites and so forth.
And then here's a PET scan of how we show how the brain changes as a function of nicotine. So the idea here is that the red parts um, represent um, increased number of nicotine receptors, which means the brain wants then more nicotine and so forth. <clears throat> so we pilot tested all this to see if the college students actually understood it, and for the most part, they said, yes, they understood it. Now, of course, I'm not sure how many of them are going to go and say, no, I don't understand it, because they may have the expectation if you, they say to you, I don't understand it, you're going to want to go ahead and give it more details. So maybe this is just them being nice to us and saying, yes, we do understand it. Okay, so <clears throat> everybody got this information. Can I ask a question back on that? Sure. So um, if somebody stops smoking, does that change back to the non-smoker um, changes? I think so. I think smoking? physiologically you have a reduction in the number of nicotinic receptors. But I'm not exactly sure. And do you know how long it would take? No. So everybody got the information, the basic information from the science education approach. And then everybody was told about um, um, this particular SNP, this particular genetic marker with respect to um, becoming addicted. So we gave him this particular series of facts. And by the way, we, uh, we, in our genetics part, we did tell people what a SNP is. So everybody under, hopefully understood what that information was all about. And then after they got that information, we asked people, would you be willing to get tested? Almost everybody that I know of agreed to go ahead and get tested. And they did get information about what are some of the risks and benefits of being tested. You know, Some of the risks might be if they go ahead and find out they're not as highly susceptible to nicotine addiction, it may give them kind of a green light that it's OK for them to smoke, for example. For those people who are highly addicted, or could become highly addicted, we told them one of the consequences of this may be that you lose your feeling that you're able to quit. So they knew about some of the risks and benefits of going on the go. Do you carry the risk of what's the probability that you will become addicted? Well, according to this, um, well, based on this, it only contributes about 1% of the variability. So it doesn't predict very much, right? I think it doubles the risk to some degree, but what we expressed more than anything else was the frequency of how many people get this, and to some extent, the level of risk. What we try not to do is really quantify it as much. What we try to do is to say, you're either at above average risk or not at above average risk. Did any of the students, um, because it's college students, ask you anything about quantitative relative risk, odds ratio? I mean, how sophisticated is the people you're talking to? Um, not that I know of. Okay, so there, there was no questions coming in that, that actually would, would query and say, what is my, I mean, it's following the test. Not that I know of. And so we went ahead and tested these participants. And there were 90 who we tested. And what we found, there were about, you know, 39 of them were above average risk, and 42 were not above average risk. Now, note, we used the term not above average risk rather than average or below average because we didn't want people to think that they're, in fact, below average, right? So we made kind of an overall kind of umbrella term, you're not above average risk, and we left it to them to interpret what that actually meant. And then we went ahead, and um, for the participants who were not tested, we went ahead and just told them, you know, we want you to react 
given you were actually at above average risk or not above average risk. Did they have a choice which group that they were in? No, they were randomized to those conditions. <clears throat> My guess is if we asked them which group they would want to be in, almost all of them would want to be tested. Because all of them expressed they wanted to be tested. And I think part of the reason they want to do this is because they're just curious about what the results would be. So one of the things we did is we wanted to assess how well did we educate these college smokers about some of the facts related to nicotine addiction. So what we did is we, we um, got some questions about their attitudes towards some, quote, knowledge items. And we assessed these at baseline. And during the first lab visit where they got most of the science education, and one of the things we wanted to see is did we cause any changes in these kind of attitudes. Believe it or not, these things are actually going to be reverse scored. I didn't have time to change it. But the basic idea is lower numbers represent a better idea, a better result in general. So for the most part, more people viewed that nicotine addiction is actually a disease. Um, more people believe that nicotine then causes addiction like those two other drugs that are up there, heroin and cocaine. And they more agree that it causes actual physiological changes to the brain. So all that's really good. This is at what? It's about anywhere about um, two to two weeks to a month, whenever we were able to schedule them to come in. And then after they came in, in the first month, there was one month after that for doing the, the follow-up. When they came in the second time to get the result. So one of the things that we didn't find as good of an effect are that people with higher genetic risk become addicted quicker. One of the possibilities of some of these markers is you actually become <coughs> addicted much sooner. You know, there's some people who say you could actually become addicted to, to nicotine within a period of a couple of weeks to a month. So, uh, and some people don't necessarily agree with that, but there might be some evidence to suggest that physiologically you might become addicted quicker depending on your genetic makeup. And the other thing that we didn't do as well as uh, people with higher genetic risk become addicted with fewer cigarettes. Again, there might be some physiological connections there. So we might need to work on that. And nicotine is a toxic chemical. They were all more likely to agree with that. So for the most part, and there were more questions. These are just some examples. We asked about 10 attitudinal kinds of questions. These are just hitting some of the highlights. So we were, in fact, able to educate them or change their attitudes about some of the things which we felt are important about nicotine addiction. <clears throat> so. Here are some of the questions and some of the domains that we actually went ahead and wanted to test. One of the issues is if we were to go ahead and tell you your result is that you're above average risk for getting addicted um, versus not versus not testing, does that actually change people's confidence that they could go ahead and quit? And this is one of the big complaints and the behavioral issues about testing for nicotine addiction. If you tell people they're more susceptible, does that in some ways make them feel they're less empowered to quit? And what we had was a three-item scale that measured this that was used in the prior study. <clears throat> scores go from one to seven, where a higher score represents greater self-efficacy. And what we generally find is that there's no differences among the various groups. In fact, the trend seems to suggest opposite, that the more likely it is that you might become addicted, the greater the likelihood that you were to say what, that you felt you're more able to quit. Now, maybe that's kind of a defensive response. It could be that you're telling people, well, I might become addicted, so how can people compensate for that? They might say, well, you're not going to go ahead and control me. I know I could go ahead and overpower this addiction thing. But this is good because it's not showing that there's any detrimental effects on people's confidence in their ability to, to quit, given the test result and not tested. <clears throat> then the 
The other question is, what do you think is your perceived risk of becoming addicted? This is from one to seven, where seven represents a, a you know almost certainty that you're going to go ahead and become addicted. And we found the result we were expecting, which is if you were told you were at higher risk, the more likely you thought you would become addicted compared to the other two groups. So that's a good thing. <clears throat> well, what about worry about becoming addicted? Well, here we found no differences among the groups. Again, higher scores represents greater worry. So what's the likelihood? So how worried are you be about becoming addicted? There are no differences here. In fact, we found an opposite kind of trend given what we expected, which is you would expect at the higher risk group, you might do what? Think you'd be more worried. Now they expressed less worry. So one question here is, is, again, are they behaving in kind of a defensive manner, which is I'm really not going to worry about something which is a negative kind of uh, event. All right, and desire to quit. Um, so what we found here is that higher risk people were more likely to express they had a greater desire to quit than people who were told they were not at high risk, but it didn't necessarily vary from people who um, had no desire, who were not tested. Now this particular result actually is very important in that the not high risk group and the not tested group did not differ. Because one of the complaints about some of the uh, genetic testing issues is if you tell people they're at lower risk, hypothetically, they should do what? Be less inclined to do the behavior. And what this slide here is showing is that there's no particular strong evidence to suggest that if you tell people that they're not at higher risk for nicotine addiction, that somehow compared to those who are not tested, they're going to say, well, I express much less of a desire to quit. And this is a complaint that is consistently <coughs> brought up in almost every grant I ever do, if you tell people that they're not at the bad end, people are going to say, well, that gives them a cloud branch to go ahead and do whatever they want to do and not change their behaviors. In fact, that's not the case. And the literature seems to suggest, overall, if you tell people they're not at higher risk, it doesn't, for the most part, have any detrimental effects. So it's a common belief that if you tell people they're not at higher risk, it's somehow detrimental. There's no strong evidence to suggest that that's actually the case. All right, so now here comes the big hitters. <clears throat> um, so one of the questions we asked them at the one-month follow-up is, did you quit smoking? And did you quit smoking for the last 30 days? And also, did you quit smoking for the last seven days? And what we found here, we were able to get um, um, 129 of our 134 people at follow-up. So our overall response rates was fantastic. <clears throat> And the overall quit rate was 18.6%. So we had 24 people quit out of our 129. And if you look at them by groups, what you find is those people who got tested on average quit at 23% of the, within each group. And that compares favorably to those who are not tested. So what does this seem to suggest? This seems to suggest that just the mere fact of getting tested seemed to have an effect on these kids on, on quitting. Now, this is a little bit different than what we were predicting, what would we predict? We were actually predicting that people who were at higher risk would actually go ahead and have higher quit rates than people who were uh, at the, compared to the other people in the other two groups, okay? And then finally, if you look at the seven-day quit rate uh, for the one-month follow-up, <clears throat> what we find here is basically there's no differences among the people who said they did quit, that they did smoke within the last 30 days, and then you followed up with, well, did you smoke during the last seven days? So out of the 105 people, we found an additional 21.9% of them quit. But the group that seems to be uh, the largest proportion of non-quitters, of quitters, would be those who were not tested. But supposedly, it seems to be that the main effect is on the 30-day quit rates more than the 7-day quit rates. 
So if you were to go ahead and summarize all this, what we find is that science education improved knowledge and beliefs about nicotine addiction. <clears throat> um, it doesn't seem to affect self-efficacy beliefs in any kind of negative way, which I think is good. <clears throat> and it's related to some of the constructs that we think will mediate changes in the facts. So for example, uh, this issue about perceived risk being a hypothetical predictor of cessation. By the way, we haven't done any further analyses since we have actually got our final data a week ago. <laughs> so I haven't done all sorts of analysis. Does perceptions of risk actually predict cessation? That's some of the things we need to do. And then we found some promising trends that it promotes a greater desire to quit. And ultimately, it seems to be the case that just being tested seems to have an effect primarily on the 30-day quit rate, but not so much in seven days. So you could say, well, what are some of the future directions we could go here? And then I'll open up to any kinds of questions you want. What we're thinking of doing is maybe submitting this either as an R21 or as an R01 for future study. And we might align with Wake Forest. Because one of the people at Wake Forest is actually doing some, res some research with the student health clinics. So one venue of trying to attract smoking smokers is through the student health clinics. And you could capitalize maybe on what's called the teachable moment. How many of you ever heard of that concept, teachable moment? So there might be times where people are more open to ideas of what they should be doing. And if you go to a student health clinic, the idea is you're a little bit ill or else you wouldn't be there, or maybe seriously ill. And it might be at that particular moment that people might be more open to actually an intervention about educating them about something of dealing with their lifestyle habits. So that's one idea. Another idea that might be worthwhile, and I'm thinking, we're thinking about doing this with maybe people at uh, NHGRI, at, at NIH, is there's now, and I don't know about any of these markers, there's apparently some markers on, on cravings that some people are more likely to experience cravings than others based on their genomic profiling. So one interesting issue might be, can we combine susceptibility feedback with craving feedback to give them a more com complete idea of what it might be for them if they were to go ahead and keep on smoking? So that's another idea. Another idea might be, as you mentioned earlier, is maybe combine with uh, this feedback with health coaching or some form of follow-up that could actually help these kids out. provide feedback for people who are actually actively going to the NC quit line. So they're having health coaching, but they could also get susceptibility information back. Yeah, I mean, that's a possibility. The one thing, though, is for most people who call the, the quit line, they're already pretty heavily addicted. So giving them feedback about your susceptibility, they're going to say, well, I already know I'm addicted. So it may not have very much of an impact. Now, the craving marker might be a little bit different. Uh-huh. here is that people like the idea of getting some genetic testing and, and your intervention effects apply to people regardless of what they learn about their genotype. Uh, and so on some level, genetic testing is a way to get smokers into the clinic to deliver an intervention like this. Uh, that may be ultimately the, the real benefit of sort of genomic and, and genomic medicine here, at least at this point. I mean, I guess the other question would be, to the extent that people have some sense of their addictive susceptibility, 
if the genotype that you're using, the genotype score that you're using, doesn't do a great job, uh, it may be that they just don't buy it. And that's why sort of high-risk versus low-risk folks aren't showing different responses to the treatment. Oh, so for example, how well does this particular marker predict addiction, something like that? So, so we actually asked the question, how well does this predict, I think, a nicotine addiction? We haven't analyzed that, but that's one of the things we will be analyzing. Yeah, I think that's kind of an interesting idea, to get, offer people genetic testing as a way, as maybe as an incentive to get them in there for more in-depth intervention. That's, that's it's like you're creating the teachable moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and you're probably selecting for a group of individuals that probably are more interested in, in their health because they want to seek out some genetic Yeah, that's a possibility. The other thing I want to comment on is, uh, and I brought this up years, years ago, I think there's a difference between how well it predicts the magnitude of risk versus just the thought of being susceptible. And I think there are distinct processes. One is, okay, you're twice as likely, well, whatever that means. Um, but then there's just the sheer idea of knowing that you're susceptible, and that may have an additional, if not more important, effect than whatever the magnitude of the risk is. Just to, just to give you an idea, um, when we did a study looking at this marker called, this gene called GSTM1 for lung cancer that I did with my colleagues like Colleen McBride years ago, and we're actually testing this, this gene um, in now college smokers, we wanted to go ahead and do some sampling and practice of this stuff, and then they gave me my result. Okay, my result said, suggested I was missing the gene, and therefore that put me at a higher risk for lung cancer. So then I went ahead and say, okay, am I interpreting this right? And they said, no, you're interpreting it wrong, that actually you've got the gene, so you're better able to handle toxins. But when I initially interpreted it that way, I was thinking about, oh my God, you know, here I am susceptible, even though I know this gene has very, very low predictability in predicting lung cancer. So I think those are a couple of different processes. So you mm -hmm. kind of alluded to, um, you asked older, heavier smokers, you know, they might not care as much because they would already know that they're addicted. But how do you think, um, or is there data on like genetic and behavioral factors between, say, younger, light smokers, younger, heavy smokers, and then, because these people are pretty light smokers, you know, if it's less, I mean, my, let's, I could say pretty light smokers, less than five cigarettes a month. How many of them go on to be smokers when they're Yeah, so I think that the data are that if you start smoking before the age of 18, about half of them go on to become smokers, and the average year smoked once they've started smoking is 18 to 20 years.
Yeah, so the common, the common way of categorizing somebody as a smoker is, have you smoked at least 100 cigarettes in your lifetime? You know, and usually, you know, have you, have you smoked a cigarette, even a puff, during the last day or so? You know, those are some of the very common questions. And, and there are, there are chippers, you know, there's different people who smoke do, in social situations versus the classic one, which is, you know, the pack-a-day smoker. But the other thing that we're noticing is that more and more of the youth are starting to start smoking a little bit later. Um, so there's this trend upward in terms of age of initiation of smoking. And part of it has probably to do that as they get older, they are less supervised, like at home and, or, or in, a, in a particular setting. But it's um, still scary. I mean, if you think about these in our data, about what, 90 of them are still smoking. So the findings with that is inconsistent about whether it does or doesn't predict lung cancer. Mm -hmm. But it's something to be wary about. So one of the things you tell people is, and by the way, is this particular SNP related to any other particular kind of disease? And you might say, yeah, it might be related to lung cancer. Um, the question of whether it actually influences them in terms of the risk for lung cancer is what we're trying to find out. Does it really do anything? I think one of the things you will find uh, based in anecdotally from our study with the study with lung cancer prediction in college smokers is that they will say, well, it's okay that you told me this. I'm a little bit worried, but I don't really need to worry about lung cancer for a variety of different reasons. One is I'm going to quit long before that will ever happen. I'm going to quit when I get married. I'm going to quit when I leave school. I'm going to quit when I have kids. Um, it's an event that's really down the road quite a bit. And then they'll sometimes start saying it anyway. You may have told me this, but this marker doesn't predict the risk very high. So I think what will end up happening is if you give them threatening information, there may be more of a tendency to want to reduce the threat of that particular information, which makes it what? Then less successful as a means of persuasion. So uh, two questions. The first is follow-up on the quantitative based on other behavioral studies like this, framing and heart study, a couple of others. Do you think that communication of risk, if, if the, the students are told you have a 10 times chance of getting addicted as opposed to average. Would that make any difference? Because this is non-quantitative, um, higher risk. And, and I know in some of these other behaviors, your risk of getting this is that. And, and would, would that, do you think that that would make a difference in these types of studies, if it was actually quantitative and it was a high level? Um, yeah, so. Compared with other behavioral studies. Yeah, so the literature in general on risk communication is if you give people information on relative risks, that has a much more bigger impact in persu on persuading people to do things than if you just present the absolute risks. So if I were to go ahead and say to them, and by the way, your chance of becoming addicted is 10 times greater, but the base rate is only 1%, yeah. which is still a low absolute risk in general terms, I would probably say, yes, it's going to have a bigger effect. And the second question, and this is extrapolating a little bit, there's some GWAS studies that are on uh, with, I think it was an NIH study actually, for people trying to quit and looking for SNPs that are associated, I think it was George Boole, 
in our age. And, um, extrapolating a little bit, if somebody's a smoker and then you tell them, well, here's your, your genotype that predicts how well you're going to quit, would that, would that have any difference at that level? I mean, with, assuming that they're heavy smokers, and then there's a genetic test that says it's going to be easier or hard for you to quit. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. That's a question I wanted to pursue maybe four years ago. Um, this is the work that Karen Lerman has done a lot with, you know, the idea of what are, what like, some of the dopamine uh, genes and so forth. Um, what they're basically testing is what seems to affect people's ability to quit. Now, the important question is, in fact, if we told you it would be easier or harder for you to quit based on your genomics, does that make a difference? As far as I know, no one has ever done that. I would probably say that um, the, the right answer of what, how people should respond is if you have a greater tendency for not being able to quit successfully would be for them to make better use of whatever it is that you give them. Of course, the contrary to that, that reviewers will probably say is, well, how do you know that? You're making people feel not efficacious in being able to quit, so maybe you're actually doing damage to them. I don't know. And conversely, for people who you say you may have an easier time to quit, they may be the group who actually quits the least because they say, well, whenever I really want to quit, I, since it's going to be easier for me, I'm going to be able to do it. In fact, one of the bad things about showing people nicotine replacement products and telling them that they're effective is that people say, well, great, here's a product that I could use that will make it easier for me to quit. So I'm going to keep on quitting, I mean, keep on smoking until the day I really want to quit, and then I'm just going to pick up this product and it's going to work. And what people will tend to do is they will overestimate the efficacy of a product that serves their purpose. Yeah, so we asked them about who in their family smokes. So we had a pretty long list of that. We asked if they, they smoke with anybody. Um, I think we've asked them questions about family history of lung cancer. We haven't analyzed any of that stuff yet. That's a, but that is one of the things we'll probably be looking at in the future to see what effects, if any, it has. Yeah, so some of the stuff like the Truth Campaign, you know, you're talking about some of the, that stuff. Yeah, so there's two ways that's being done. One is through those truth advertisements, and the other one is through uh, graphic cigarette labels. Yeah, I haven't seen that with And in fact, um, I'll tell you about a study I'm thinking of doing with those. Uh, and generally, they tend to reduce the amount of rates of smoking or get people to think about quitting. Mm -hmm. So there is some efficacy to using those media campaigns. What we're thinking of doing uh, in relation to that is, uh, well, you all know that right now the, the gov I hope you 
are at least aware of this, is that, that, that the government is actually asking the tobacco industry here in the United States to put graphic labels on their cigarettes. And not too surprisingly, what do you think the tobacco industry is doing? They're claiming it's unconstitutional for us to do it because it violates our freedom of speech and, and so forth. But that doesn't exclude all the other countries in the world from using them. And in fact, what, you're, what we're finding is that countries that use graphic labels actually find that they do have an effect. They get people to more think about the risks. They do get to think more people about quitting smoking and so forth. But what we want to do is we want to create three-dimensional holographic images. So the idea is these are effective to the point people pay attention to them, right? Well, people eventually are going to become immunized to seeing some of these graphic labels. So how can we get people to pay more attention to them? One of them is to make them 3D. So you get to see a lung that's harmed more graphically. You know, when more detail, you get to see falling mouth parts <laughs> more graphically. Um, Yeah, so, so clearly doing something in terms of raising prices has an effect. But if you think of all the things that we do, we do media advertisements, we do policies of you can't smoke in places, we increase the prices, we have nicotine replacement therapy, we've got individualized therapies, we've got whole public health, community interventions, individualized interventions. If you look at the last 20 years in terms of people being able to quit and stay quit, defined as three months or more, the trends have only been 5 to 7%. So the intriguing puzzle is why is it that we have all these different interventions to get people to quit and stay quit, yet the rates are never higher than of those people who attempted to stay quit for more than 7%. There's a great, real high relapse rate. Well, I do think that there's some people that clearly have quit smoking and they say, gee, I really, really desire that cigarette because it used to do things for me. Um, but for others, it's, that's not particularly the case. I mean, a lot of people think, for example, gee, I spent thousands of dollars on this product when I could have been used. You know, I'm coughing, I'm ill, there's lots of downsides to it. It's an intriguing question. I don't particularly know what the answer is. All I could say is there's multi-pronged approaches to try to get people to quit and stay quit 
and it isn't all that successful. Um, looking at their social situation, if they if they desire to quit, but they're in a group of people that actually smoke and they're always put back into that situation, then there's the peer pressure or there's just the atmosphere there. And if you don't remove yourself from that, then it's harder to actually do it. So that's the social aspect of it. Right. That's that's why when people say, let's think about you quitting, let's do some things that are important to try to help you stay quit or or, or go through the process. One of them is don't be around other people who smoke. Which is very it difficult for some people. Some people, that's true. Get away from any stimuli that may remind you of smoking. If you're stressed and use cigarettes as a stressor, think of things that might be an alternative, like stress pots <laughs> or anything like that. Did you know the time when you asked the students these questions or the quick rate? I'm just thinking of the cyclical stressors of college student midterms and exams and the ups and downs of stress. Oh, no, no, no. We didn't, we didn't ask them, like, for example, do you have an exam this week or a major assignment or anything like that? But you would expect if it's random, it would be equally distributed across all the different groups. Anything else? Mm -hmm. Oh, so we so we used the genetic counselor to give the information, but it was pretty standardized. It was you know here's your information, here's your results, um, very much done through the web and things like that. Mm -hmm. Which universities did you solicit? Well, Duke, UNC, State, uh, UNCG, Elon. Um, I think one or two more. Why do you need to go to Wake Forest for this study? Uh, I mean, I'm sorry? Why do you need to go to the Wake Forest Student Health uh, Service as opposed to Duke? Um, is the incidence of smokers just less here? Or, or well, we didn't recruit anybody here from the, from the uh, Student Health Services. I'm thinking if we put in a future grant, we will. Because I didn't know anything about the, the student health services and how easy it would be to recruit. And we've had pretty good successes with establishing other relationships with the other campuses and could recruit pretty quickly. Do you think that this is, um, goes beyond college students in terms of the, uh, the potential? In other words, um, um, what I'm thinking about is, um, and I don't know if you know the, the numbers, but I'd be interested as to whether the Duke selects uh, population. self-insured and these are going to be individuals that are going to probably end up costing our health system more than uh, the college students you're talking about, at least in the short term. Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, right now I think we're open to kind of any general population that we think aren't particularly heavy smokers. I mean, I don't know what the effects would be if we put this in heavy smokers. I think if we were to go ahead and put this in heavy smokers, I would think that the actual effect won't be that great unless we pair it up with something else. You know, like the craving stuff, maybe. And then you can link the craving <coughs> stuff to, you know, obesity and other addictive behaviors and see if that's something that goes across the board through all of those. For what smoking do you and 
obesity and craving food and, and see if that's a common theme for people who are, have nicotine susceptibility. Oh, whether they have cravings for other things? Yeah. Um, never thought of that. I don't know how well the, the, those particular markers generalize because I don't know anything right now about those markers yet. Any others? Okie dokie. Hey, thanks very much. Mm -hmm.